Hi, my name is Nico Tixe. I'm the head coach of Furway and the coach of the women's national team. And I invite you to listen to the Half Court Press podcast. Hi, I'm Luis Potrite from the Spa Pritias and you're listening to Half Court Press podcast. Grassroot Sports is the seventh season of the Half Court Press podcast. In this series, Theo McLeod talks to a variety of sports professionals about how they think youth team players should be developed. Hi, I'm Aldair Bejarano Tortos. I'm the keeper of Costa Rica's national team, and you are listening to Half Court Press. Welcome back to the Half Court Press podcast with our grassroots specials. Today we have a guest who is living in Yorkshire currently, but has gone as far as field as Latin America. Matt Noble. Hey, how are you doing, Matt? Yeah, very well. How are you, Taylor? Not too bad, not too bad. Yeah, I was going to say, it's been, been a while, hasn't it? Yes, yes, we were, working, <laughs> we were working together out in Mexico, weren't we? Yeah, we were. Um, it's coming up about nearly two years now, isn't it? Two well, years ago? We moved out January 2018. So, yeah. Left uh, the summer. Yeah, so, so, yeah, over two years, isn't it? So, that's gone fast. <laughs> Time has flown by, hasn't it, mate? Flipping, eh? Yeah, so, it goes quick when you're, when you're having fun, doesn't it? Especially yeah, it does. It does indeed. <laughs> um, right, so for our, our avid listeners, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Where you're from? Uh, how old are you? Oh, yeah, what sports do you play? Who are you? Yeah, so obviously you've introduced me, Matt Noble. Um, 27, living in York. And I'm currently coaching for the Leeds United Foundation. Um, and also for a grassroots football team called York RI. Um, so, yeah, that's, you know, what I've been up to recently. Um, and now, you know, I'm on to, um, you know, with Leeds United, it's different different situations within the community it's more with, and working with the girls sector as well. So, um, yeah, it's really, really interesting. Um, and then obviously, I've, as you know, I'm a, a big cricket fan. I love my cricket. Um, so I've been involved with a local team and my local team as well that I play for, New Aidswick. So that's been really enjoyable. Um, uh, yeah, been a busy summer in terms of crickets. So uh, yeah, can't wait for the football season to start again. So like, so like any any good good Yorkshireman, you're into your 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 walking sports, your cricket? Walking sports. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm loving it. Obviously, um, you know, I grew up loving cricket. My granddad was uh, a big cricket fan. Uh, my dad played when I was a wee little nipper. So it's always been in my blood, cricket. Um, and then I, you know, from school I played and then went into junior setup and now playing adult cricket. I remember watching you play cricket in the Mexican leagues. Yeah, so... Shouting, shouting you know, scores from the clubhouse, aren't you? <laughs> well, you know, not many people know about the uh, the cricket set-up in Mexico. So, I was involved with the junior set-up. 
which was the under-13s Mexico national team. And we went on numerous tours to Chile, uh, Argentina. And when I, before, well, after I came back to uh, England, they also went to Peru. Um, so for me to be involved with that was, you know, one of my biggest dreams come true in a way. I was in charge of doing that and I got to see some of the countries that I never thought I'd see as well. So, so you were the head, uh, one of the head, one of the senior youth team coaches. Yeah, yeah I was. I was indeed, yeah. Um, there was another guy before I joined up, which was an Australian guy named Chris. And he wanted some, you know, to free up his time a bit. And he asked me, do you want to get involved a bit more and stuff? So, I, you know, I was, you know, I love to coach. That's my passion. That's what I've done all my, you know, adult life. And, um, you know, getting into cricket coaching, obviously, is a lot different to football coaching. So it was a new challenge for me um, and a challenge that I really took on and really enjoyed, really, really enjoyed it. And still enjoying it now with, you know, the junior setup that I'm involved in in my local cricket club. So, I mean, so the cricket, cricket in Mexico is still quite a, a young sport. It's still quite a minority sport over there. In terms of a grassroots conversation, how was it trying to get that uh, bit, bit closer to the mainstream? So, before I left, there was, you know, we were discussing the exact same question that you were saying, like, how can we you know, progress the junior setup within Mexico. So, you know, the main the main one was to go into local schools around the areas within Mexico City, for example. And, you know, I've put on a a couple of sessions a, a week of cricket basically. Just some fun, you know, quick cricket sessions, just so they understand how to hold the bat, you know, when to run, stuff like that. And then, obviously, from that, you can then see certain players who have the, you know, the natural ability of hand-eye coordination of when, you know, of hitting that ball, or you know, the release point of bowling the ball. So, since I've left, I've been in touch with uh, the, the guys over there, and you know, they've got involved with a couple of schools. Uh, one of them being Wingate School. Um, another one was the um, Greengate School as well. So they were a couple of schools that we've got involved in. And, you know, the, now cricket in Mexico has grown a lot over the past five to ten years, for example. Um, it's now in a lot of states in Mexico. So instead of it just being purely Mexico City, you know, we're looking at kids in Guadalajara well, there's a big setup in Guadalajara. There's a big setup now also in Cancun. You know, uh, we've got Monterrey as well. So Nuevo Leon, which is the state there. Um, and, you know, Los Cabos as well. So it's not just centralised in Mexico City. We're look, you know, looking at now going out of Mexico City, going out into the biggest cities other than the main one, really. Is that is that just through uh, getting into the into the local schools, or is that? Um, so that's due to having um, some people involved in the committee that have either moved out to them cities or know people within them cities as well. 
Um, so in Cancun, you know, there's a few people, uh, a few players there who play in the national men's team. There's a few people from Monterrey. There's a few people from Guadalajara. They all come. They've all got their individual teams now. So it's not just, you know, bits, uh, dips and drabs now. Now there is actually a Guadalajara team. There's actually a Monterrey team. There's actually a Cancun team. Uh, when I was there, they were trying to get Las, uh, Las Cabos. Uh, obviously, Mexico City have a team as well. And there's a, some others that I haven't mentioned that are also getting teams together. And uh, we're looking at, obviously, making a proper Mexico cricket championship now. When I was... When I watched the Mexican Championships that summer, yeah. Yeah. there was a lot of um, British and Australian faces. There's yeah. a lot of uh, Indian and Pakistani faces yeah. Where, yeah. where hockey is already quite strong. It, it, it seemed to be predominantly an expat game. Is, is that changing? Is that... Uh, well, you know, the biggest uh, thing now is, you're right there with the expats. Obviously, you've got, we've got uh, people from Pakistan, India, England, Australia, South Africa, you know, five of the biggest nations in, you know, international cricket. Um, but, you know, the, the overall objective for us is to enjoy the, obviously play to enjoy and to win and stuff like that, but also to showcase what cricket is to Mexicans, you know, Mexican nationals. So, uh, when I was playing in Mexico, in my team, there was there was a couple of Mexicans uh, in the team and we were feeding them in, into playing games regularly. Um, obviously, with the kids set up, there were most, most of the kids were Mexican. So, bringing them through the system and then bringing them into adult cricket, now, that's how you're going to get and feed in Mexicans into the actual national team as well. So, you know, that's, that's been progressing over the time. And when I was last there, it was looking very healthy. Um, also with the girls, women's cricket, you know, with the women's cricket, I think there was only a couple of them who were expats and the rest of them were Mexican, Mexicans, basically. Um, so for them to have a proper, you know, women's setup with nationals, that was massive, and it was such a great achievement for Mexico cricket in general. So let's go, let's swing back to to football. You mentioned yeah. that you've been working for Le Leeds United. Um, yeah. For the non uh, football initiated who listen to this podcast, uh, Leeds United are. Uh, quite a quite a small football club, aren't they? Give over, uh, you know, you know they're one of the biggest now. <laughs> I mean, she Sheffield United have been doing quite a bit better recently, haven't they? Uh, they're the smallest club in the Premier League from Yorkshire now, aren't they? Let's be fair. Leeds United have just been promoted uh, to Premier League. Will probably play their first game after this episode goes out against the English uh, European. Uh, former European and world champions Liverpool. Yeah, yeah, massive game. Easy, easy three points for Leeds there. Um, I don't think Liverpool have much of a chance of beating us. I, it, it, it's funny. I in this in this 
the, the, the interview I, I did, did just before you was with uh, a former a friend and former colleague of ours who's also from Leeds, Leeds United fan. He says exactly the same thing. Ah, oh, did he? <laughs> Easy three points. Ah, well, you know, it is. We, we all know the truth. We don't lie. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I think some of the time he's digging out Billy Bremner from, it, from his grave, isn't it? It's uh, getting back out in a bit. Billy Bremner. Yeah, well, the sleeping, uh, the sleeping giant is now awake and ready to go. So, yeah, it's fantastic, fantastic. I mean, I suppose that could be a slightly different podcast, couldn't it, in terms of the, the overspending 20 years ago, having oh, yeah. a few divisions and then build yourselves back up again. I suppose yeah, that yeah, that's, you know, I was I was a kid when that all kicked off. You know, I, I remember the, just remember the days of being in the Champions League semi-finals, beating the likes of Real Madrid, Barca, AC Milan, you know, all these big boys. And then... Uh, and then for it to all being uh, ripped apart in 2004 when we officially got relegated, that was that was the year. That was the summer before I started secondary uh, secondary school. So for me, it was you know fresh on my mind. And people from that time straight away, I had a target on my back being a Leeds United fan. Everyone was taking the nick out of me throughout secondary school. It was. And, Still are now, like, but you know, I can have the last laugh now. We're back where we were belong. <laughs> from, what I, from what I remember, it was all based around spending money based upon getting into that at the time the third and final English Champions League spots. Yeah, it was missed out by just like a point or something. And the following, yeah. the following year, there was moved up to four spaces. It so, did, yeah. Anyway, but it's the following year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the well, the chairman at the time was, you could say, he was a gambling man, and he gambled, and uh, it didn't come off, and that's when the, uh, that's when it went all downhill from there. Because then we finished, we finished fourth, and then the following season finished fifth, and then it, we just kept on going lower after that. So, and then that's when all the big signings, obviously Robbie Fowler, Rio Ferdinand, you know, Alan Smith. All these big ones, Harry Kuehl, Jonathan Woodgate, these massive names who have done so well after Leeds, you know. It's uh, crazy to think that they were once with us and we nearly won't league with them. So, yeah, it's mental. But on to better times now, so it's all good now. I mean, towards the end of that decade, the Leeds United shirt looked like um, an F1 car. You know, sponsorship logos over it, you know, down uh, and things like this. Uh, back of shirt, top, top, top of back of shirt sponsor, bottom of back of shirt sponsor, three or yeah, four of them. It's ridiculous. Um, it's ridiculous. Why, so what have Leeds United done to, um, to bring themselves back up? Have they done anything differently or is it just that they had a big club in the area? You know, we've got this new owner now who's been with us for about four years, I think it is now. Four or five years. And he said from day one that he, he came in, like they all say, he, you know, well, I'm, my main aim is to get us back to Premier League. Obviously, fans are like, yeah, 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 yeah. We've heard that so many times. Um, but he's done a lot of things different. He hasn't been silly with money. He's built a team that we can afford. You know, he's bought back the stadium. He's bought back the training ground. Um, 
and then two years ago he got a coach in who is arguably the best football coach in this in this world. Uh, even Pep and your old Tottenham boss Poch, he even he said uh, that you know Bielsa is the best in the world. And then we've had two years of him. First year, you know, we were the nearly club. And then everyone wrote us off for the second year with him in charge. And, uh, you know, we come finish top champions as well. So, you know, the, the owner's done so much for the club. And he's going into the foundation side of it. He's wanting now Leeds United to be a one, you know, a family. It's not you're the foundation over there, you're separate to like Leeds United or Leeds United Academy. We're all now one big family. Um, so, you know, it's, for Leeds fans, as me as a Leeds fan, it's been brilliant. And I can see it as now as an employee of Leeds United, I can see it, what it's like within the foundation and how everybody's on the right page as well. So, give us a bit, a bit of insight into your job. What do you, what's your day-to-day routine? Well, what will be your day-to-day routine of COVID? Uh, what sort of stuff do you look out for? What, what sort of stuff do you do you implement? Yeah, so, you know, the main uh, thing for me, working in the foundation, um, I've been in with a few programmes, which one of them is the Wildcats, which is going into schools or junior football clubs and uh, getting the getting girls involved. Um, It doesn't matter what ability they are. You know, we're just trying to get girls involved with sport. It could be, you know, football-based, but making it as fun as possible. Making them enjoy it and then seeing if they then can take the next step, which is then, you know, going into a skill centre or a development centre. And then from there, they can then progress into the shadow squad. And then from there, they go into the academy. So that's one of the programs involved in. I'm involved with the um, the girls' shadow squad. So with that, it's working with the girls who are on the border of getting into the academy teams or into the RTC as the known regional talented centres. Um, so our job is to you know give them a push. You know, can we push them and get them into that t- into that squad basically? Um, so we're looking out at talents you know it's again it's you know the ability level is near enough the same okay but you know again the ability level is slightly higher than what the Wildcats is Um, Wildcats is focusing on just getting girls involved in sport the Shadow Squad is girls playing football weekly for a club um, and obviously getting them up to the next level so that's another department. Um, I'm also working with the Premier League Kicks, which is working within the community, um, which is a great experience. So going into places around Leeds that you know won't have as much, that these kids don't have much money, basically. Um, so you go in, you give an hour or two session, you just go in, let them play football as much as they want. You know, you're there as kind of a referee, um, making it as controlled as possible as well and uh, you know getting involved as much as you can as well having a bit of a laugh with them and uh, which is 
you know, the experience is fantastic. I, I really enjoy doing that. And then the other one is the Premier League stars, which, or primary stars, should I say, which is working as or doing uh, PE sessions within local schools in Leeds. Um, so we go in, we do some PE sessions. Again, it's all different sports, so that's based on multi-sports. Um, you know, we, we get to do some dancing. So I remember a session that we did there. Um, just before the, I think it was about January time, I was uh, doing some sessions in a school and it was based on dance. And obviously, first thing comes to my mind is, you know, I don't, I don't really know what dance, you know, what, what dancing is really for myself. Well, well, uh, I, I don't know, Matty. I've, I've seen you in the, in the nighttime in Mexico City. Do you, well, do, you, do you bring in a pint of, of water for you to balance yourself out? <laughs> If there's a table down uh, nearby, I'll put it down and then uh, you know what I'm like, Teo. But I also know what you're like when you're on the dance floor, let's not forget. Hey. Great moves. That's some great moves. Absolute throwing some shapes. And also doing some other stuff. Uh, I remember on that last night when you were throwing up everywhere. But we won't get into that. <laughs> so, um, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, so yeah, the dance that we um, so I got you know I got a few things through from uh, you know some of the manage or one of the managers at Leeds Foundation and it was um, a document on the hacker and I thought you know what thinking of the dance I did not think that dance did involve sport at all really you know in different sports should I say so yeah one of the sessions was doing the hacker with the kids and that was. Do you know what? It was one of my one of my favourite sessions I've I've done in terms of you know giving lessons to kids. Um, obviously, we know what the hacker is. It's a rugby. Well, it's you know it's from New Zealand, based in New Zealand. It's a. Uh, it's a war. It's a it's a war. war it's yeah yeah. So it's a war cry in a way, isn't it? So getting the kids doing that, showing all the emotions, it was brilliant. It was great fun as well. Um, even myself, I got involved in there. Um, so yeah going back onto the uh, departments that I work at that was another one so there's a lot of different stuff you know working in schools working in different communities working within the football side of it but all of it is for me fantastic because it's a new experience every single time and you know for me it's the perfect job to be in I'm working for the club that obviously I support and I love so for me this is my dream job you know I want to stay within the football side of it obviously I want to progress myself as a football coach so the next step would be for me to try and get into the academy where I'm working full-time as a football coach but for now you know I've got this opportunity and it's for me it's it's crazy that I'm working for Leeds United can't believe it. I have to still pinch and you know I've I've got my my uniform hanging up on the door and I wake up to it and I'm like Leeds United it's it's surreal <laughs> you brought up a, a couple of top, uh, points here which was I was going to ask you about later on yeah but in terms of uh, socio economic uh, opportunity to play and, uh, and, and women's and girls football in terms of opportunities to play as well. Um, in, terms of this, in terms of 
going um, going into local communities and getting people who yeah. don't come from the from the from the strongest uh, economic background. Um, how, what are the issues around that, and how how do you try and try and uh, fix those those problems? So obviously, you know, some of these, the some of the kids that come to us, they don't obviously have a lot of, like you say, economic backgrounds, and you know, they don't have the chances of playing football. They're on the streets, you know, doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing. But with bringing them off the streets into the football side of it, you know, it's not just football that they're learning, is it? It's, you know, everyday values, you know, respecting people, you know, not the first reaction of if someone's tackled you, you don't go up and start a fight, for example. You, you know, you, you get used to knowing that, right, that's what happens in football. You know, you get tackled, you don't have to react like that. So, you know, there is some issues that, you, you know, you do come across. Um, but some of these issues, you, you know, there's another community worker or a support worker there. So if you have heard anything, you go to them and you can tell them the issues. They can then talk to these individuals separately. Um, but do you know what? You know, it's the classic safe. I don't know. My mum or my dad was walking down the street and they saw these kids on the street. They would cross the street to not walk past them. But, you know, you don't know them. You know, it's a strange thing. It's like, until you know them, they're fantastic. Fantastic kids. Fantastic kids. And they have so much respect. You know, some of them don't support Leeds. Some of them support the likes of uh, Chelsea, Man United, or a Mickey Mouse club called Tottenham. I don't think they've won much recently. Um, Building up to it. Building up to it, mate. Get there. (laughs) You know, so even though they don't support the team that you're working for, they respect you every single time. They're not, they're not going to, they might have the odd, oh, why wouldn't that have felt? But you go, you, you just tell them, right, relax. All right. I, if I'm the referee in a real game, I don't get everything right. Now, it's now down to you to know how to react if something doesn't go your way. You can't come aggressive. You know, you, you got to get on with it. So, again, you know, you take that into life, into life situations. You know, if someone's got something wrong, you can't just react aggressive straight away you might you need to take a step back and think right yeah maybe this might have happened that might have happened so so yeah that's uh that's it really with uh with that side of things and then obviously yeah the the women's football girls football um yep i've been watching a bit of uh women's super league recently yep the international summit as well over the last couple of yep. years so and from it, I think you and I had a chat about this a couple of years ago. Of the standard has 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 risen a lot. I think a lot of that has come from money and investments. Since you yeah, yeah. give a decent amount of investment into the into these teams and the clubs and the players, my God, if it can go professional, then the standards will rise. And it has to quickly. Oh um, yeah, massively. Yeah. One of the one of the, one of the things I have noticed about the league and so on is it's a bit of a theory. Wondering if you can help me out with this. Yeah, go on. Of boys and and junior men's players seem to have had more opportunities with better coaches and better facilities and more investments 
over the last, from our generation backwards and older yeah. than, than women and girls have had. And yeah. they had a knock-on effect to standard of the league. Now, that isn't a, a, a gender-based thing. That's an opportunity-based thing. Yeah. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah. Well, you know, look at the setups. Years in, well, when I was growing up, you know, girls' football, I don't really remember girls' football. All I remember is, as you know, as you're growing up, it's, you might get the odd girl or two playing with the boys. There was never much girls' separate teams when I was a young lad. And then going back and further back, again, there was no opportunities for the women, was there, or for the girls? Not that I know of, anyway. Um, now, that opportunity has now totally changed. It is 100% totally different. Uh, you look now at, like you said, the, the uh, WSL, the Women's Super League, um, the amount of money that's been pumped into women's football and the girls' junior setup as well. It's been, it's been crazy. It's it, it's grown within the last. Well, for me personally, it's grown since I've been at Leeds. It's grown massively. Um, you know, with it helps when your country does well in World Cups as well. For example. I mean, you know, the Women's World Cup's just, it went past. It It happened, was it last year, I think it was, the Women's World Cup? It's one of the odd years for the women, isn't it? When on the eve. Yeah. So, and you know, England got to a semi-final. Now, the year before, the men's got to a semi-final and everyone was focusing on that. Now, the women's, even even last year, there was record number of people watching the Women's World Cup in the UK. The England set records, I think. Yeah. Um, so over time, you know, going back to you know the opportunities and that, there's yeah, there is more money uh, involved with the setups and everything. There could be more. Obviously, it's not as you know, money is not as big as the men's right now. Uh, so there could be more opportunity of more money. But if you look over the past. 20 years or the, yeah 20 years the growth of football in women's and girls has it's just I would say it's doubled maybe even more than doubled and for me personally being involved with the uh, with the girls setup um, it's I find it I find it fan, uh, fantastic it's a fantastic setup you know I never thought that I would be involved with the shadow squad, for example, but then knowing that there's another opportunity for the girls to go even higher than that into the regional talented centres, the RTCs, which is the academy, and still from there, then they have still opportunities to go to the big top teams. And now, you know, in the women's um, regional teams, uh, regional divisions, there are so many divisions now, I think. I was talking to one of my friends who I work with. He's now in charge with the Barnsley football women's team. Um, I'm sure he was saying they were about seventh tier, eighth tier. Now, years ago, how how many divisions would there have been? There wouldn't have been that many divisions. Eight eight divisions of women's football. You know, again, it's it, it's credit to the FA for making it grow. 
and credit for the people who have been involved with it because it is a fantastic opportunity to be involved with the women's now. It's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Like today, you know, Manchester United women's have just signed um, a player from the USA national team who won the World Cup. You know, there's another uh, woman from uh, from Yorkshire, actually, Rachel Daly, who's just signed for the West Ham women's. Who, Well, she normally plays out in uh, Houston. So, you know, all these big names now are getting attracted to the English Premier Women's Leagues. And um, again, it's just going to create a more buzz about it. Everyone's going to start watching it. And uh, I know I've, I've been watching women's football a lot more than what I used to. And I, I find it brilliant. It's a brilliant standard as well. Um, so, yeah. You know, opportunity-wise, it is it is just blown up in in a massive way, in a good, really, really good way. How's the Leeds United women's team doing? Uh, the Leeds United women's team, they were well back in the day, and again back when the the men's were really good. They used to be, um, you know, challenging for the FA Cup women's, uh, the women's cup. They used to challenge for the league, the top league. Um, but then a certain amount of money got involved certain different owners came in and you know took you know Leeds United women's got made well the uh, basically the owner said that we don't want them to be officiated to us as Leeds United so then they had to create a new team which then obviously all the players then disappeared um, but over the recent times, again, I'll go back to the new owner. He's made it as a family. Now they are back to Leeds United Women's. Um, and uh, I think, I want I want to say that they are in the, I want to say the fourth tier or fifth, fourth tier, I'd like to say. Yeah, fourth tier, which is a couple, of, a couple of tiers below the Women's Super League Championship, which then it, from there you progress into the Premier League. Yeah, there's two tiers. I think women's, I think the women's super league, the top tier, the first division is fully professional. Yeah, and, and I think you, you need to have you need to have a license to get. I think a team one. Yeah, I think a part-time team won the second tier and were denied promotion because it didn't fulfil the licensing requirements. Yeah, so Sunderland were a massive women's team, and again, the license they didn't they didn't get the license to play in the women's super league. They got demoted. Doncaster Bells as well. They were the same. They didn't get their license. Um, it does come down to money with that sort of thing. But when we go back to obviously, you know, the money side of it, the money side of it, it's becoming massive. So teams will eventually get this amount of money to then progress themselves into these divisions. And you'd like, to, I'd like to think that if Leeds United get the opportunity of getting the license. The owner is going to push and push and push to try and get Leeds United to get that license as well. I was reading about this a couple of years ago. It may have changed since then, but as it was then, it was you need to have uh, healthy-looking books for a, for a couple of years or so. Yeah, have a, a good amount of sponsorship, uh, an academy. You need to be getting yeah. new players through, so it, it's not just a one-off. It's it's, it's consistent. Yeah, and I, I think maybe maybe a, a, an appropriate stadium so the fans can have a good time as well. Yeah, 
Obviously, yeah. So with the stadiums, they all have they don't all play in the actual stadium that the men's playing. Um, obviously, due to the attendances and people don't really go to watch women's football in comparison to ninety thousand, uh, seventy thousand that go and watch Manchester United or Arsenal, for example. But they play at like lower team, uh, you know, lower men's teams grounds. Chelsea, Chelsea ground share with I think it's I think I think I think it's AMC Wimbledon, uh, Man, Man City ladies I think they uh, they use the academy pitches so that's where the yeah plays yeah so they use the um, the I call it a mini stadium because it's within the grounds of the the training facilities isn't it uh, Liverpool I don't know what they're doing since they got relegated I believe they were using Tranmere Rovers yep. Stadium, yeah, there were uh, just like a satellite town to Liverpool. Yeah, exactly. So you know the the play. It's not like they're not playing in these types of big, you know, not big big stadiums, but they are playing in stadiums, um, and they are getting a lot. They're getting crowds out there. You know, the the um, the grassroots team that I coach for York RI, they've got a women's team, and. Currently, they're only one division below York City women's team. So, the levels and everything like that, obviously, York City are a semi-professional team, well, professional team. Um, you know, there's them opportunities where they could play against York City. There could be a York for, for York women's derby, for example. So, you know, yeah. these, these grassroots women's teams... Are getting these opportunities out there? Yes, it will grow. Um, yeah, and it, yeah, massively. I believe the in terms of crowd sizes, I think the, the English FA had noticed that they had record uh, average attendances a couple of years ago, and it's plateaued just below that now. But the, but the, yeah, that's still significantly higher than it was ten years. And I, and I think you know, with what's going on in the world with the coronavirus. Um, with the women's uh, Super League starting again now, I think it's going to, you know, as bad as it is, but I think it's going to benefit the women's uh, side of the, the game because so many people want to watch football and in a live stadium as well. I think they're going to attract a lot of people to come to these games that wouldn't normally come to the games. Um, obviously, they can't go into stadiums as yet, but eventually when they can and there's like a 25% increase in attendances, I think the women's will, um, they'll, they'll get, you know, a decent sized crowds, which again, financially is going to benefit them all, isn't it? Yes. So let's swing it back round to specifically youth development rather than sporting development. Yeah. How does youth development compare between England and Mexico? Well, you know, we've had this conversation many a times, haven't we, back when uh, you were, well, we both were living out in Mexico. Um, you know, with, you know, the, the opportunities and the, uh, the youth and the growth within uh, Mexico, like you know, Mexico football, Football in Mexico is like a religion, isn't it? Yeah. 
And again, over in England, it's exactly the same, but that in Mexico, they don't have another main sport that can compete with football. You might throw in baseball, you might throw in American football, but it's nothing compared to, say, in England, you've got, uh, you've got cricket, football, rugby. You know, three main sports. Um, so obviously in, in Mexico, it's, it's huge. But, you know, in terms of the youth setup, um, it is very different in Mexico to what, uh, compared to England, I think. Because in Mexico, you can play for a club that's representing a professional club, but it's not classed as an academy. So, for example, I might throw in Club America in Mexico City. People can use the name Club America, but they're not part of their setup, if you know what I mean. So people might join that team thinking, oh, yeah, I've got a chance of going and getting pushed through these uh, different things. Now, uh, I only learned this when I obviously moved out in Mexico, that there's a Fuerces, ba uh, Fuerces Basicas, which is the academy teams. Now, for you to get, obviously, into the academy teams, you've got to obviously play for a team and hopefully be scouted. Now, in Mexico City, and you know this, how big is the city? How many people live in that city? I think it's about 20, is it 20 million? Uh, yes, at least. And there's probably some people unregistered as well, isn't there? Yeah. Now, if you think 20 million people, that's nearly a third of, is it the UK's actual, It's yeah, it's a third of the UK's population, isn't it? 20, if I remember rightly. Our equivalent, London, is about, depending on what you call London, between 8 and 12 million people. Yeah. So, you compare that, there's only Cruz Azul, America and Pumas. Three main teams now in the whole of Mexico City with 20 million people. If you compare that with London, with 12 million people, or whatever, how many kids there are, look how many clubs there are. There's about 11 or 12 professional clubs plus all the part-time ones. So... Again, it, you know, it's, it's just how it's happened. But for me, like, you know, the opportunities are there for the kids, but you have to be very lucky, I personally think, compared to, say, if you are in England. Because in England, if the, the, there might be so many, so many scouts watching you from in Yorkshire. Look how many teams there are in Yorkshire. You know what I mean? Look how many teams are in the northeast. Look how many teams are in the middle, uh, the Midlands. You know, so there's a bit more of an opportunity there and a chance for the youth to, you know, get into the setups really. Um, in Mexico, you know, I think there was a couple, the, the company that we were working for, there was a, two kids got onto the Club America books. Um, you know, for us, that was a, one of the proudest moments because obviously we've worked with them and, you know, they got that opportunity to play for Club America for Wessers Basicas. But how many kids are just as good as them but haven't had the opportunity to be scouted or to play for a club? You know, it's it's very, in a way, different. Uh, I want to put it to you. What do you, what do you think from your experiences there? 
yeah, it, what I found was it's very results driven. 100%. Uh, you know, over in England, like, you know, you, you're working on the, uh, the youth set up in, uh, in England compared to Mexico. If you're not, you know, if you're not getting the results and it, you know, it's the same in England in a way because you do get people coming up to it. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't we win? Why didn't we win? Um, but in Mexico, I thought it, you know, it, it seemed a bit more like that, didn't it? For me, well, for me, it did anyway. And like you say, for you, sir, you've brought it up as well. So, well, it, what I both enjoyed and was a bit uh, cautious of at the same time was the uh, terrace full of parents cheering at every goal and and sometimes even booing. Uh, yeah well you know that parents for in terms we're going on to parents and I know there's a you were going to come on to this a bit early uh, later on weren't you about tricky parents you can talk about it now why, why yeah, not we'll, we'll crack on with it now but parents are like they are all over the world I well I've been, I haven't been all over the world but I'm saying in terms of my experiences in Mexico and in England, um, being on the sidelines or being involved, parents are very similar. There are a lot of parents who don't understand your way, your methodology or your philosophy in football. There's a lot of parents who might have failed as a footballer, as a as themselves as a kid, and want to push their kids to get further than what they did. Um, but then you also have the parents who understand you, just let you do your thing because, you know, they might understand football, but they understand what you're trying to do. So say if I was stood on the sideline in, in York one time and I'm, I hear abusive language towards the referee. I also hear parents demanding that the referee gives a 12 year uh, a 13 year old a yellow card so that he can get simbined um and they're demanding and shouting you know i've been involved with an incident as well where a parent has you know had a dig at me trying to get a reaction out of me now for me all i care about is how my kid uh, how my team are playing and how they're developing you know Likewise with you, we're not results-based. If they win, lose, or draw, it doesn't matter. We're there to, our job is to develop the kids in the football side of things and also in the social side of things, as, you know, outside of football. Um, so in them terms, you know, with tricky parents, say if they do come up to you, and it has happened, and I know it's happened to you, and uh, why haven't you done this, Teo? Why haven't we won Teo? You can't turn around and tell the parents to go away. You need to let them have their opinion. Obviously, in the back of your mind, you might think, well, you know, don't agree with it, but let them have their opinion. Let them have their talk, because if they don't, it's just going to build up and it's just going to cause more problems, isn't it? But that's what I feel like, anyway. How much of it is setting out agreed principles at the start of the season 
Well, yeah, you know, you can, and I've done this as well, and obviously with where we were, um, with what we were doing in Mexico, everyone, you know, knows what the philosophy was, knows what the methodology was. Um, I think parents get a little bit, some parents get emotional and forget about what they've agreed to. <laughs> like, you know, the part, you know, they're um, into the game a lot and they're very competitive. Now, you know, it's, with that, it's, um, trying to think of the word now, it, You have to agree to also disagree, no? So the parents, they might, they'll have to, to agree with what you're doing. Maybe they'll go back home and say, oh, well, I, don't, I don't agree with that. But if your child is enjoying their football, that has got to be the main thing. It's, that is the main thing. If they're enjoying football and if they're enjoying being with their friends, and socialising, then fair enough. All right. Yeah, we don't like to, you know, as a as an adult myself, I don't like to when my team lose. You know, I, I'm not like, well, you know, all happy about it. You know, you take things out of it, you take the positives out of the negatives. You know, you think about how you can work on certain things in training, um, and things like that. How how important is competition in youth sports, and when should it be introduced? Um, I think personally, around you know from under sevens to at least on well from the youngest age group all the way through to at least under twelves at the you could push it under 13s you know you're playing for fun maybe before under 13s because you know everyone's hitting puberty and all emotions are going crazy out there under sevens to about under 12s then we'll say is what i would say is they want to play for fun you know just let them go out let them have fun you know our job is to progress them as of, uh, progress them in football as much as we can we've give them we give them the tools in the trainings then they show their tools of what they've get, uh, what they've learned in training and put it into a game yeah so for me it's sit back and enjoy the game with obviously questioning the uh, questioning some of the things that the kids might do so you know was that the best decision not making the decision for the kid basically let them make the mistake to then correct themselves again if they keep obviously making the mistake that's when you can jump in and say look i think you might try and do something different there or whatever when you get to around secondary uh, secondary school i think that's about 12 isn't it i think 11 12 never knew 12 yeah uh, 13s um you know, that's when the puberty is starting and they all think that they're better than everybody else and the competitiveness comes into it. They're watching football week in, week out, the Premier League. They're seeing what their favourite football is like. Um, and for me, it's adding the competitiveness gradually. 
but obviously it's going to come in naturally as well from them. Um, you know, I'm not going to go as a coach, and this is me personally, um, at under 13s, I still would like them to obviously have fun and everything like that. But now it's, let's try and challenge yourselves. What can you do as a team? What can you do as a team now? Can you go and challenge for the uh, for the league maybe? Can you challenge yourself a little bit for, you know, a trophy of some sort? Um, or even to beat a team, for example. Um, I'm currently working with the under-16s now. For me, they've grown into that competitiveness of, right, we're out to win now. If we don't win, yeah, they'll be gutted. And uh, some of my some of that lads are, you know, it gets on top of them a little bit, and they get a bit upset. But they're now at that age now where they know that they're out to to win a football game with the fun aspect as well. But personally, for them, they're trying to win as much as they can. Um, it's their last year of school. They're moving up into possibly adult football next season. So. Um, but yeah, that's that's how it is. Again, it depends if you're in a. I'm just basing my opinions off um, grassroots football. If you're working in an academy, I think it is slightly. It's very different in terms of you know the competitive side of it and wanting them to. Not what, not yourself wanting to win. Obviously, we want to win, but then you're including it a lot more. But what is the difference between elite sport and social sport then? Well, social sport for me is um, you know us playing together in a five-a-side, seven-a-side, eleven-a-side. Same with the kids as well. If they're just playing for a local club, um, you know, then they might not be the best ability. And they're just there to, to play and have fun. If you're good enough for the elite side of things, that's when the training, obviously, it's a lot more. You're um, on top of training about two to four times of training a, a week, depending on your age group. Um, there is the social side of it, but with the elite, it is then working towards what can you you like trying to get to the best of what you possibly can. Um, you know, you're competing against other people to be in the position that you are to try and progress onto the next age group. For example, under 16, uh, sorry, under 18s. When you're in the under 18s, you're trying to get your first year pro. Um, now, obviously, you're competing against your teammates for that. So you're Proving to yourself, uh, proving to the coaches that you're working, you're you're working as hard as possible in training and in games to you know get in front of your teammates in a way. So the competitiveness, we'll go back to that. It's not just between other teams; it's about your teammates as well. If you're in the elite side of things, what is the difference between senior sports? Adult sport and youth sports. Um, 
what in general or as in like the elite and the grassroots side because oh. both so obviously for men's um in the grassroots you know you could play in the highest division which is still amateur um and in a way you are like you've been in and around academies throughout your you know through kid levels and stuff like that um and you know in in adults obviously the competitiveness is there massively you know i'm not saying it's not more, <laughs> even in the reserve of, league would you say adult sport is more results driven rather, rather than de 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 developmental yeah yeah 100 percent um in the first team, for example, yes, because when you hit a certain age, you know that you're not going to be a professional footballer or whatever. Um, you want to win. You're out to win. It is, it's not putting pressure on the grassroots manager at all because obviously it's volunteering, isn't it? But the players are looking to obviously win all the time. Now, if you go to the reserve side of the team, the reserve team are looking at, you know, developing still players who have come from under 16s to under 19s and now feeding the under 19s into the senior football. So the development side of things in the reserve league in adults is still active, but until you get into the first team, you know, you know, maybe you know and I know that once you get into a first team of amateur, there's not going to be a chance for you to progress even higher than that. You know, you might be 19 or 20. You kind of pass that age then, aren't you, to, you know, there could be an opportunity for you to go to semi-pro, but to officially become into the top elite side of things, it's very rare for you. So basically, adults reserves is, you know, filtering in some some youngsters to then build them onto the first team. Say if they're good enough in the first team, maybe they'll get picked up by a semi-professional team where they might earn a bit of money. Um, but obviously it's nothing compared to what they've been talked about when they've been growing up, you know, playing the full-on professional side of things. Should young players, youth team players, should they specialise in one sport? If so, at what age? Uh, that's a big question because I know me and um, Luke, who was also on your podcast, we've had a discussion. I think you might have been there for this. I'd probably uh, that was a big thing for me. Well, you know, if... Are you, are you saying from a younger age or are you saying a specific? So, do you think multi-sports education is a good thing? And should players start to specialise as they get older? I think kids should be involved in all sports up until an age where they know which one's for them, which one they might have a better chance of progressing further out. Would you say now, individual's choice? I think so, yeah. 
you know, sometimes nowadays it is based on parents and what they think, unfortunately. But for example, for myself, you know, I, um, I was never good enough to make it. Obviously, my ambition in life when I was a young kid was to become a professional footballer. You know, I, um, I never had that opportunity. And then obviously I had another spot to turn to, which again, I didn't have the opportunity, but I played two or three main sports throughout my, well, I'd say two sports mainly throughout my childhood and into adulthood, which I'm now still involved in. Now, I personally think that kids should play as much sport as possible because it's not just them learning um, a certain skill in football, they're learning all types of skills, you know, within different sports. So with cricket, it's not just your legs. You're getting your upper body involved. Now, you know, with football, it's, you know, unless you're a keeper and stuff like that, with football, you're mainly using your legs and stuff like that, different turns, twisting, you know, different movements compared to what you would do in cricket. In rugby, you know, again, turning different ways of you know using your leg muscles more you know motor skills and stuff like that it, so for me i think it benefits all all kids to take on more than one spot then maybe you know as they get older that's when they'll think right well you know I'm, i favor this spot more than i favor that spot so you might take on that spot a bit further on in life oh Earlier on, you spoke about uh, natural ability and, and the coachability of natural ability. Can, this, can natural ability be taught? Is, is this, can it be promoted through multi-sports education at a young age? Well, you, you know, quite a lot of uh, professional sportsmen are very good at more than one sport. You know, there's the old classic, I think it's Phil Neville, who used to play cricket with Freddie Flintoff at Lancashire as oh, a young age group. Oh, Neville can't even play football. No, well, that's, <laughs> where he, that's where he made the wrong decision, wasn't it? He went to football instead of cricket. So he was involved with, you know, a cricket setup as well as a football setup. Then he made the choice of taking on the football side of things, where Freddie Flintoff was obviously the cricketer. Um, so, you know, I think it, yeah, it, you've got to, you know, you've, you've got to not force the kid into obviously doing the sport because if you force the kid, then that's what's going to make them not want to do it. But if they're interested in more than one sport, then go for it. But what was your question that you asked again? Sorry, Taya. Can multi-sports education give the impression of natural ability? Right. So, again, you know and I know that natural ability just comes to, to somebody. It's not, it's not taught, is it? Or do you think it can be taught? I, I think kids are very good at creating disorganised games which promote cognitive and athletic attributes. I think kids who, who play a lot of sports subconsciously take these in 
and gives the appearance of, or it can give the appearance of, of natural ability if you were to break that down. Some of it is genetic, but I think, I think up right around the age of 11 or 12, it's very hard to distinguish that, it's, especially if you've been playing three or four or five different sports from the age of five. Yeah. So for me, if I saw, for example, working in Mexico cricket, if I saw a young lad or a young girl pick up a bat and I threw one down to him and then they they just naturally played a cricket shot. For me, they've got some like the you know, it it's not obviously wow, simply, oh my god, we've got something here. It's okay, we've got something to work on. We've got something to work with. You know, it's the hand-eye coordination's there. Right, let's build on it. I, you know. In a previous series that I did, actually the one was the Pan-American Hockey Series, which was yeah. series six of the Half Court Press podcast. I, I interviewed a variety of, uh, of people from, from Latin America, North America and the Caribbean who play yeah. hockey, who were involved in hockey. One of the people I spoke to was a uh, Jamaican hockey international, men's international called Kamal, Kamal, Kamal Mitchell. And he was saying he could have, play, he could have played football for the, for the Jamaican senior team. He, he was very good at cricket, athletics. In Jamaica, there's, they go out into the streets and they play different sports. Or they go out to the field and play different sports from a very, very young age. Yeah. Now, what he called natural ability which is a very common term, once we broke that down, it was saying actually this, these abilities have all helped. He took up hockey in, his, in, in secondary school or high school. Yeah. It, it, he had the, the skills he had once he picked up a hockey stick were instinctive, but that's different to natural. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. And that's the same with like picking up a cricket bat, you know, but then that's where we can say that if kids take on different sports from a young age, you know, what they're going to learn so much stuff throughout their childhood that then will come involved and will get it, it'll all be involved in a certain way in certain sports, you know, like cricket and hockey. I'm not saying it's very similar, but it involves certain hand-eye coordination skills the same as each other, doesn't it? You, you have the basic clunk, clunky cognitive abilities and then you can fine-tune it with training. Yeah, exactly. Um, and again, we've, you know, you could put rugby and American football in there. <laughs> the throwing side of things, you know, the running side of things, the turning, the twisting, changing of direction. Again, that involves in football. So, yeah, it's a really uh, interesting question that to, to go for. So, separate question, but potentially with a, with a crossover. Should yeah. players specialise in a certain position from a young age? If so, um, now, I have to admit, before I moved to Mexico City, um, for the second time, I was full on thinking that children 
should uh, should just play in one position. Um, you know, I was playing a kid at left midfield. I always thought he was good enough at left midfield, so I played him at left midfield. However, I went to Mexico City, um, and then certain things. I was watching certain coaches. I say coaches, a certain coach, and watching him and how he changed his certain positions of kids and rotated them around. Then obviously, he uh, in the second year, he then obviously um, got involved a little bit more in the third year as well. Um, and he created a philosophy and methodology. So obviously, you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So before I met him, I thought that kids should only have one position. Then I got to obviously know him and know his ways and then obviously live with 4P and pick his brain and you know see certain things in trainings as well, watching him train, him giving me some ideas and stuff. And then, um, yeah, from that, obviously I've grown as a coach. I. I personally think I've grown now by saying that kids should not have a certain position uh, from a young age. You know, they've they've got to try every single position. You might have little Jimmy playing in striker for game one. You might have him playing in, in goal for game two. Um, you know, you might have your top goal scorer playing in defence for one game or during the one game. You know, you're always rotating the kids' positions from a young age. And I think it is very important for the kids to obviously develop different footballing skills, knowing how to defend, knowing how to be in the midfield, knowing how to obviously be in the attack, different movements, different angles. And obviously being in goal is very different as well. You know, obviously being a keeper myself and I've played in different positions myself as well. Um, you see the full picture, you get to obviously come talking to the defence, you can see everything in front of you. So, again, you're learning new skills there as well. And, yeah, I, I generally think they should rotate from a young age. You know, I think it's very important for them and their learning. For more on this, Please listen to episode four, season four of the Half Court Press podcast, View, view from the Touchline, the Luke Thorpe interview. Or AKA Thorpey, as, uh, as we've been saying. As certain people uh, name him, yeah. <laughs> as we begin to wind up, what makes a good youth team coach? What makes a bad youth team coach? Um, so you can't. Again, football is very opinionated. So what I might think is a bad youth team coach, you might think, mm, maybe, maybe not. Uh, whatever I say might be a good team, a good youth team football coach, you might go, don't agree with you there. So here's what I'm going to say. So, you know, a good team, a good youth team coach, in my opinion, is somebody who's wanting to develop not just a certain ability but all abilities you know somebody who 
enjoys what they do. Enjoys, you know, puts a hundred percent effort in the planning, you know, and the delivering. Somebody who, again, a good coach, I think, is not shouting at kids, not giving them directions to do stuff within a football game. So maybe saying, uh, "We'll go back to little Jimmy. Little Jimmy, pass it to him over there. He's in space. No, let's take a step back and let let's see if he makes that decision himself." You know, we're not we're not the kids' brain. You know, we're not going to tell them every single thing to do. Let them do it. Let them make the mistakes. Then that's when you might have to jump in and say, do you know what? Maybe you could have tweaked that a bit. Maybe you could have done something different there. I'll go on to a bad youth team coach. Obviously, shouting at kids. I don't think shouting at kids is going to encourage them as much because if you're shouting at the kid, 100%, the the parents of the kids are going to do the same as well. Um, You know, again, I'll go for it, telling the kids what to do. Again, take a step back. Um, And then we, we need to remember that we're role models to these kids. In grassroots and in academies so these kids look up look up to you as a as an adult as a football you know role model so if i'm insulting the officials and if i'm saying referee come on what what's going on there you know in a bit of a an aggressive way i'd say that for me is a big no-no because then the kids are going to see that they're going to take away right well the coach did that i'm going to do that and then you're involved in bad practice, 100% involved in that. And that's going to affect the kid. And it could also affect them outside of football as well. Um, you know, I'm a football coach, yes, but and I'm, my main job is to coach football. But the other side of it, I'm there to, you know, help these kids grow, not just in football and developing football, but also help them develop certain social skills as well outside of football and, you know, being that mentor in a way. What are your favourite memories as a, as a player, as a coach, as a fan? Uh, my favourite childhood memory, and I'll, I'll never forget it, was I was never a big aggressive player if you can if you can believe that now Taylor I wasn't a big aggressive player when I was a kid um I want then, once you eat, eat a center forwards Matt well yeah times have changed now but I tell you <laughs> back when I was a young kid I was petrified of tackling somebody and I'll never forget it it was one of my um I think it was like penultimate junior seasons and I've slid in and tackled this kid and got the ball and he's fallen over. And I just remember looking up and seeing the parents on the sideline and they all stood in front. They didn't know that they, they just couldn't believe that I tackled somebody. Cause I was never, I was never, I was a bit of a, you know, shine type of player, never tackled. I didn't like it. So that was a big uh, childhood memory. I'll never forget that. Now, obviously future Matt Noble, Loves a loves a tackle when he plays in centre back. That's why I've had to drop back into goalkeeping, um, as you know, Taylor. 
um, my favourite moment in football, uh, that was my favourite childhood moment, my favourite adult moment was I won the, and it was only a reserve league again, it was my final season before I moved to Mexico and it was my first season in adult football and we won the reserve division two league title. Um, so that was a, a nice achievement for me because obviously I left on a high. I left to go back. Uh, I left to go to Mexico and start a new chapter in my life. And as a coach, it was being um, being able to take. Well, there's been a couple of things as a coach being my favourite thing. One of them's been most recent. I had a kid come up to me and he. Uh, he said, look, I've never been in a training session as such, such, like I've never been in a training session like this ever before in my life. And I said, well, what did you think was different? He said, like, you just let us, you know, you, you did what you had to do and you just let us play. And the difference of like um, different types of sessions as well, it wasn't A, B, uh, A to B to C. It was, you know, allowing them to have a ball each as a warm-up. He said that it, that never happened at his old club. So he said, in front of his parents as well, he said, this is the best training session I've ever had. For me, that was fantastic to know that that feedback's coming from a new player. Um, you come back then, next week. Eh? You come back next week then? Yeah, he came back, he signed on for us, so happy days. <laughs> but no, it's brilliant because as a, as a coach, our best days are knowing that the kids are happy and the kids are having fun. Um, I can go on about other memories of, you know, being able to have a team that have played on the Azteca pitch in Mexico City, the only stadium in the world to ever host the two World Cup finals. Um, you know, as a, that was a fantastic memory for me because the kids had so much fun. You know, they went into the press room, they went into changing rooms, they went on the pitch. And for me, I was feeling like one of the kids. I was like, oh, my God, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle. I'm where Maradona handballed it against, you know, <laughs> against England. And I'm like, oh, my God, standing around. Oh, it was fantastic. But I felt like I was one of the kids, you know. So, you know, best memories are always in football terms with the kids and knowing that they're having a great time and having a fun time. That's the the main thing for me. I think I'll end it there on that note. Yeah, before I get emotional and you start crying, tell you. Yeah. <laughs> it's going for your Oscar speech. You don't, you don't want to uh, steam up your spectacles. <laughs> <laughs> I did that last night trying to cook some rice and pizza. You know? Oh, nightmare. I opened up the door and I couldn't see what I was doing. Well, you haven't lost them recently, I see, so it's all good. <laughs> Matt Noble, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Taylor. This has been a Half Court Press production by Teo McLeod.